open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Finding mentors early on is important for so many reasons. A good mentor can help us carve out the right career path and teach us lessons that we then carry forward into our own practices. Some of us are given the chance to give back by passing those lessons along to the next generation of ophthalmologists. Dr. Sumitra Candlewall counts herself lucky to have had what she calls true mentors, whose advice she still relies on to guide her today. She pays it forward with a resident she trains at Baylor College of Medicine at the Cullen Eye Institute. Sumitri is here today to talk to us about those who have helped her along her journey, as well as the advice she gives to new residents seeking help from her. She also discusses how she originally dreamed of becoming a famous international journalist before ultimately finding herself drawn to a career in medicine. Coming up on Off the Grid. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Welcome to another edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and today I have the fantastic Dr. Sumitra Candlewall with us from Baylor. Uh, Sumitra and I have known each other for quite a while. I think, Sumitra, didn't we meet in Austin, maybe at one of the first Millennial Eye meetings? If my memory serves me right, I think that's where we met. Is that right? That's actually when we first met. I know we had both seen each other's names on emails and on different programs, but that was actually our first meeting at Austin. Yeah, and uh, Millennial Eye has uh, held a sort of a a near and dear place in my heart ever since then, and um, it's going to be a great meeting this year. But um, that aside, I'm really happy to welcome you onto Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and I want to talk a little bit about what makes Symmetra Candlewall tick. So, um, with that being said, why don't you give us just a little bit of an overview of your practice, some of your passions, and then we'll just sort of dive in and maybe even start with some background stuff. Sounds great. Well, thanks for having me, Gary. This is great to be part of this off the grid. So I'm in Houston, um, and you know I'm an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Baylor College of Medicine at the Cullen Eye Institute. I'm also the medical director for our eye bank. That's kind of a new role I picked up um, two years back. Um, always exciting to have new challenges ahead. And I also staff the residents at the Michael DeBakey VA. So basically, I'm trying to be in two places at once. And I have decided that you can do that as long as it's the same zip code. But once you start crossing town, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, but I love it because every half day is a little different. Every day presents its own challenges. And just when I get a little exhausted of a clinic filled of patients, and I can switch over to doing one of my other roles, like teaching the residents um, or serving um, as administrator at the eye bank. And so it's a lot of fun. Um, I grew up in Houston, so it's also great to be back, actually. Um, and it's been a fantastic five years now. That's awesome. So it sounds like you have a lot of variety in your life. Um, but actually, going back, um, the little known fact I think about you is that you did not start college thinking you were going to be in medicine. Actually, you had other passions. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that. You were studying international studies at WashU, maybe thinking journalism. Is that right? Yeah. So it was funny because I actually grew up with two parents who are physicians and I admire them incredible. They're wonderful people, wonderful mentors. Um, But, you know, just seeing sort of the way 
that they they approached the, the nightly conversations that were all about you know patients and stories and such. It's funny, it kind of drew my brother and I away from medicine. Um, he succeeded in that he's in, in politics and a lawyer. Um, me, on the other hand, um, I'm, I'm here. So as you can see, went in a different direction. When I was in high school, I wanted to be like a famous international journalist. I kept looking at all these great, uh, you know, feature news um, type articles. Back then, I think the news was a lot happier. Um, and I wanted to do something like that. And so when I went to uh, WashU, I, I majored in international studies. Um, my you know, priority was to do at least two abroad programs, um, did communications classes. You know, obviously, was, I was editor of my newspaper in high school. And so went in really being excited about that. And, and it is exciting. It's really fun. It's just that I kind of found that you know, I still was kind of drawn back to the steadiness um, that could be in some sort of you know, medicine or something like that. And so my second semester, I decided to go ahead and take some of the prereqs. And the one that really caught me was, was, I think a lot of people agree, physiology really caught me in college. And so I ended up going down, at least doing a biology minor, and then going into um, applying for med school. My thought was, though, I could somehow integrate the two. So when I did um, my study abroad, um, I, I did it in Spain. Um, one of my focuses was healthcare issues there. Um, I also did my thesis when I was in college um, on uh, two cities, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. Um, and, you know, they're just, you know, a bridge away from each other, but they have very different um, structures. And one of my projects in college was actually, um, you know, how different political events change the healthcare in two neighboring cities when they're uh, like a first world country meeting a third world country. So it was really exciting to bring all these different interests together. Ultimately, I went into medicine. I kind of fell into ophthalmology because um, that was what I was exposed to my first year um, during like a research project. So, so you know, I'm, I'm not really quite the international journalist I thought I would be. I'm still getting to write tons of articles for great publications like Millennial Eye um, and maybe, you know, getting to travel to great meetings too. So maybe indirectly I'm getting to check off some of those boxes. You know, I think it is interesting because – I think if you have passion um, you know, at your core for helping people, that can express itself in various ways. It can be through you know, shedding light on, on issues, um, political or geopolitical issues. Um, it can also be much more tactile in terms of helping patients. Um, or it can be somewhere in the middle like teaching residents where you're sort of uh, giving back. Um, I know your, your background, you, I've you know, read through your, your CV and just knowing you, I kind of know your story a little bit. You have really had some of the best minds in ophthalmology invest in you, um, and now you get to sort of take that and, and pay that forward to the residents who are at Baylor. Talk to me a little bit about what those mentors have meant to you kind of along the way, um, both at Emory and Minnesota Eye and, and maybe even now beyond that, and uh, maybe some of the lessons that they taught you that you're able to, to carry forward as you, as you train residents now at Baylor. Yeah, no, I think I've been so lucky um, to have just, you know, each step of the way have not just attendings who teach you surgery, not just, um, you know, people who say, you know, Here, here's your evaluation, um, but really true mentors, mentors who not only, you know, pat you on the back and say good job and, and hope the best for you and write you good letters, but also those who are a little bit realistic and um, you know, make you humble as well. Certainly when I was uh, in residency, you know, Emory is a great residency program. It's a pretty casual group. Um, the attendings are always willing to sort of help out the residents. Um, it's, it seems a lot less hierarchical, I think, than other programs. And I had some great man mentors there. Brad Randleman was my 
research and clinical mentor, you know, I think we all, as we operate, um, have like a little person on our shoulder that we imagine, you know, kind of criticizing us. Um, <laughs> why are you doing that? Walk me through that. Come on. And my last name back then was Sabrina. Come on, Superman. You can do better than that. So that's Brad. Um, I'm not sure what he would think about the fact that I hear his voice still um, this many years later. I think he may appreciate that. But he was always very realistic, too, about, you know, what are the realities out there? You know, it's not just, um, you know, a, you know, golden brick road. There's always going to be some challenges. And I think also the honesty that attendings can provide for you, you know, their struggles, their ups and downs, it really sets the scene for um, you know, going into practice and going into your subspecialty with your eyes wide open. Um, I think, you know, I certainly try to do that as well. I certainly don't want to, you know, burden my residents with all the negatives, but I want them to be realistic about, you know, if you go into this subspecialty, here are the good and the bad and, you know, pick it based on, on the bad, because if you can do that every day, if you can see a dry eye patient, you know, 20 of them in a half day, then they're okay. You're, you're going to do pretty good. Um, but, you know, if you can't stand the idea of uh, glaucoma suspects all day that then don't do glaucoma, for example. And so he kind of taught me that. He told me to take the most boring thing in the subspecialty and imagine it all day long. And, and you know, that's how I ended up with the anterior segment because I still think that everything about it is so exciting. And then, you know, I went to um, Minnesota Eye Consultants in Minneapolis and all those attendings are so hands-on with training. I think they really take such pride in the fellowship that they have, you know, it's a private practice, um, but like other private practice fellowships, you know, they invest so much in their fellow, it's almost an extension of their practice, and they're so excited to see us go on to do other things afterwards. Um, you know, even now I get emails saying, hey, I saw you in that, so proud to, to see you out there. And so it was a great group, um, a group that I still reach out to whenever I have questions. And it's always funny when you have multiple attendings, you know, there are definitely great fellowships out there where you have one or two attendings working with you. The ones where you have multiple attendings, you, you get a little multiple personality disorder and, uh, you know, you, you, you operate with Dave Harden one day and you operate with Sherman Reeves the next day and Liz Davis the next day and Tom Samuelson and they, they all have their kind of, tor you know, their perks and their 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 tips and, and the, hey, you forgot how I did it. Um, but that's what keeps it really exciting and also makes you a better surgeon because you're adapting and you're learning new techniques on a weekly basis. So, And they're such a great group, too. Um, they really embrace their fellows. And they were one of the big reasons why I actually, you know, I was looking at some private practices and I was looking at academics and, you know, they're so excited, um, you know, they're a private practice, but they're so excited to have their fellows go on to, to continue research and teaching and, and, and teaching peers as well as residents and fellows. And so, you know, Dr. Lindstrom was a huge proponent of me um, looking at places like Baylor. And that's how I kind of ended up here. It's funny. I, the residents always ask, you know, how do I go about looking for jobs? And I say that you start reaching out um, to uh, physicians in the area early on. I remember um, asking Doug Koch if uh, I could maybe just chat with him about opportunities. And he said, sure, but there are none out here in our practice. And then I was like, well, you know what, let me just come by anyways. Um, and he's like, okay. And, and you know, I, I kept letting him know that I was very interested um, in Baylor. And, you know, I think finally I broke him down because he decided to interview me. And so <laughs> he still jokes around about how, uh, you know, he was thinking about the restraining order, but he wasn't quite sure uh, how to file it because uh, I definitely did, um, was very persuasive. But I think, you know, for the residents, I always tell them, you know, if you have an idea of what you want and you have an idea of location or multiple locations, you know, reaching out early is really helpful because it takes a little while to have, uh, somebody really create a position for someone's practice. Um, it's not a six-month thing. It's not like applications where you 
apply, you know, you know, at the end of your year and, and see what match ends up happening. It's all about word of mouth and opportunities as they arise um, and being flexible. Um, that's also very important as you join a practice. And so I think, though, I mean, if that had been where it all stopped, I mean, that would have been an amazing list of mentors. But I'm just so lucky here. Um, my colleagues are my mentors, you know, having Doug Koch and Bose Hamill, Steve Flugfelder, Mitch Weicker. These are great people and great teachers. And we are always teaching each other. Um, it's so fantastic, if not a little bothersome to them, the fact that whenever I have some crazy cornea in front of me, I say, hey, Steve, can you come take a look? Because he's in clinic to my right. And then I try to disperse it, right? If I ask Steve for every single case, then, you know, he may get a little tired. So then I go to Mitch and I say, hey, Mitch, what about this case? And kind of alternate between them. But the most amazing day was the day when Mitch came up to me and said, hey, Smitra, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know if I have a lot of thoughts. I don't know if I can contribute to your... But really, I mean, we all help each other. That's the great thing about being side by side with such great minds. Um, you know, there's one case where three of us were discussing it and our technicians were like, hey, why don't you present it at a cornea conference and start seeing patients, guys? Right. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that comes in. But And, you know, Zaina Almatasev um, joined a year after me, but she and I just have a blast and we learn from each other in so many ways. And that just shows that you know, your peers, same year as you, um, can be the best mentors in some way because they can really, um, really teach you about yourself as well as um, what they have learned in their experiences. Although I'm still a little bit, she and I are still a little bit suspicious of the fact that we're here at Baylor and they didn't, they refused to put us in clinic at the same time on the same day. <laughs> uh, I, I, I can see both sides of that coin. Uh, you guys love to have a good time, and you're you're both hilarious. I always laugh when I'm with either one of you. So I can't imagine if you're both in the, in the same clinic. I think that it would be really really fun. Uh, I know that would be um, a fact. Um, one thing you said actually sort of struck me as very interesting, and um, it reminds a little bit of my story. You said that you really wanted to be at Baylor. You were told time and time again, there's no opportunity here. You kept asking, and eventually, magically, an opportunity presented itself. Um, I had a similar situation in the place I'm working now. I, for six years, was persistent about you know thinking about having an opportunity to work um, at Commonwealth. It's interesting that I think a lot of times the jobs. This is this is not to say that there are not good jobs that are out there that are that are desperately looking for ophthalmologists. I do think that there's a there's you know good ophthalmologists are in short supply, so there there is a uh, demand for good ophthalmologists. But sometimes I think the best positions are the ones that you that you find and that they really aren't looking for someone. Um, by the time they're looking for someone, generally those positions have been filled, just like you said, by word of mouth. What are your thoughts on that? You know, as, as you talk to residents who are getting ready to leave and are looking for opportunities, um, do you, um, walk me through that. What are, what are your thoughts about you know, finding the opportunity uh, yourself rather than looking at recruiting site or um, another traditional uh, method? Well, I think word of mouth is really helpful. And, and I think, you know, it does help to kind of know someone who knows somebody who knows someone. So whenever our residents are kind of thinking about what they want to do, I always ask them location wise. Um, and I always say, well, you know, here's a few practices here. You know, I know so and so I'm happy to put you in touch with just chatting with them. 
um, about the market and the area. And that may not be a job interview. That may just be, you know, me setting up one of the residents or fellows with a, um, you know, a friend of mine who happens to live in, you know, name a city. And then they can kind of talk from there and then decide, you know, what are the other options out there? Maybe they end up interviewing with that, you know, with that group. I think it just, for a lot of groups, there's always this idea of when do I add my next person? When do I expand? Um, and I think that you'd be surprised how many times it's in the back of a practice's mind, but they're not sure quite how to go with it. And a lot of smart practices and smart academic centers would rather take a really good, talented person who's looking to join and wants to be there um, and, and as opposed to waiting until they really need somebody. And as we all know, when you start a practice, it's a gray zone. I mean, it's great when you end up you know, in a situation where you're taking over someone who's retired or someone who's left. But a lot of times you're building parts of the practice. Um, and so you have to figure out what you're going to do with your time. And I think I think residents are not um, and fellows are not. They're very good at selling themselves on a personal statement or in an interview. But I think one thing is to take some of the things that you could bring to a practice and make sure, you know, that people are aware. For example, if you're a cataract cornea person and, and you're you're also doing MIGs, well great, you're more you know, more of a fit in half the practices out there. You know, or if you're somebody who is comprehensive but you're willing to do a little medical retina, I mean there's so many comprehensive physicians out there who have thought about, you know, opening up the medical retina part of their practice, um, but they haven't quite done it because they don't want to do it themselves and you could be that person who fills the role. Um, so I think there's something to say about what your not just what your skill set is, but you know, what it is that you could add to a practice that could actually, you know, build the performa for you um, in a way, you know, for academics, the way that it ended up is, you know, they heard about my my excitement for resident teaching, my, my research and, you know, outcomes, and they created some extra, you know, FTEs, some extra funding from the public hospitals from both the county as well as the, the VA in order to, to fund me. Um, and then, you know, and then we ended up having a situation where Zaina came on the year after, and then we split um, all of the public time just because suddenly we were so busy. Um, and it's surprising how you get busy. You get, you get in the beginning, it's very quiet in your practice, and you know you've got you know X number of patients, and you're twiddling your thumbs a little bit, and that's the time where you should be really excited and start planning stuff because you're never going to get a breath of fresh air like that again. That's right. So I do want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, one of your main responsibilities. I think one of your main passions, and that's really about looking at optimizing outcomes at the VA with your residents. And uh, I read a paper of yours um, about femtosecond laser-assisted cataract surgery, um, really comparing outcomes uh, uh, for resident surgery. And you actually did show a, a decrease in posterior capsule rupture rate um, by using the laser. I think that's, you know, maybe a little bit controversial. We can say, well, maybe in the resident population, it's a little bit different. They're still in that learning curve. But talk to me about your uh, philosophical approach to introducing technology to residents um, and how you go about evaluating technologies to say, hey, does this actually drive outcomes, whether that's refractive outcomes or safety for patients? 
Yeah, well, you know, I think one of the great things about this residency program is that, um, you know, all the attendings are very um, dedicated towards optimizing their outcomes. At the VA, we're very lucky in that we've got some access to equipment. Um, and the thoughts are, you know, can we utilize a new technology as being not just something to improve outcomes? Because there is some discussion out there about femtosecond, but how can we add this as a way to um, expose the residents and fellows to new technology? I mean, that's one of the things that we don't want to see is we don't want to see residents and fellows go out and then they've never been exposed to a certain aspect out there and they go into a practice and they're you know, kind of relearning a bunch of stuff. We want them to be, in our program, exposed to all the new technology, even if they don't take it with them, you know. So even if they don't go and buy a femtosecond, I mean, at least they've been exposed to it. They can make their decisions on it. Hey, they can even go out there and make themselves marketable to a practice, you know. Hey, we just bought a femtosecond. Wow, here's a resident who's already done, like, 30 cases on it. I mean, this is going to be a great person to add to our practice. So, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons. The other thing, though, is there's a curiosity. I mean, you know, in order to do a study looking at resident technology and resident outcomes, you have to have the technology. It's uh, tough to get um, a study going otherwise. And so we're very lucky in that our chief of service at the VA, Sylvia Rengo, is very supportive of newer technologies. And so we've looked at what are the ways that we can improve. So we have that femtosecond study that was really great. I mean, it showed, at least took away the the fear. I mean, the residents do very well with Femto. Granted, these were senior residents. Um, initially, we bought the technology thinking maybe we could use this as a stepwise approach for first and second years. But then we found the docking is a little bit difficult, as well as the, the view and the hydro section need to be a little bit more gentle. And so we now incorporated in the third year. So there's a learning curve in just how do you implement technology in a residency program. And then with the senior residents, we compared the two. And senior residents are, you know, they're, they're, they, they still know how to break bag pretty well. And so <laughs> it was pretty good. What we wanted to show was that there was not increased complications, but it was great that there was a decrease um, in it. And what we do in this technology now, now that we publish that, is we let the residents do it based on what they feel like they want. So we have one resident this year who's going to go join a practice that has um, this particular technology that we have the femtosecond there and is excited to do all of the cases, try different, you know, LRIs or, you know, interstromal arcuate incisions, um, try the wound, try, you know, all the different things. And we have others that are going to go out into practice and they're not going to use it and you know, they don't mind pulling out the old FACO machine because that's what they're going to use. Um, so definitely the femtosecond has been exciting. We also have, you know, multiple different um, platforms for um, FACO emulsification um, technology, you know, not just one brand, um, but, but multiple types, um, both vacuum bases, whereas peristaltic, just in case the residents are going out, but also because Residents go out there and they, they read the BCS book about this is vacuum-based versus peristaltic, but how do you really understand the difference unless you've actually used the equipment? And so um, that's one great thing that we have that I, we were um, big proponents of, of making sure that we had access to that technology um, at our VA. And then also, you know, we've got the Virion as well, working on a study right now, looking at the those outcomes, um, and then, you know, looking forward to more technology in the future. Um, so I think it's really great. Um, some of the things that we've focused on for the outcomes besides just complication rates, though, is things like, you know, operative time and, you know, how do you plan your day? You know, it's, it's we, we do a ton of cases at the VA. We run two rooms, seven to ten um, cases per room, but some residents can do more than that. So how do we plan our days? We've got some studies on operative times, on routine cases and complex ca cases. So that stuff's really exciting to me. I mean, one would consider it to be administrative because, um, you know, you're, you're looking at, at data and you're trying to figure out how to 
um, make things more efficient. But I, I look at it as research. Um, some of those things can be published, um, especially if you've got a good med student or resident. Um, so it's very exciting to me um, to look at that. So I also want to talk to you about what excites you about the future. I know being around residents is always exciting because they're coming up with cool ideas. You're also at an academic center that has access to, I'm sure, a lot of uh, technologies that we would all be jealous of. But what excites you about the future? Where do you think we're going uh, with, you can take this in any direction you'd like, uh, whether it's refractive cataract surgery or laser refractive surgery or even other, otherwise. Where do you feel like if you had if you had to play some bets, where do you feel like we're going to be making some major advancements in maybe the next ten to twenty years? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's going to be a lot of advancements in refractive cataract surgery. I think we're still looking for that holy grail of um, you know how we can uh, conquer presbyopia in one way or another, whether it's early on um, in someone's forties or when it's you know time for cataract surgery. I think that's going to be really exciting. I think we're gonna we're gonna figure that one out in the next decade. Um, I think. There's some exciting stuff in, in cornea. Um, you know, it's all the exciting stuff that we don't even think about right now. But, you know, it's funny. We, we were talking the other day about, um, you know, like things like endothelial cell injection. And my fellow was like, well, I hope it's not anytime soon because I just figured out how to do DMAC. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I think that's exciting, right? I mean, how many careers do people have where they say to themselves, I'm looking forward to something exciting that's going to actually take my skill set and throw it out the window because it's going to be so disruptive. Um, so I think that's the exciting thing about it. It's a little, it's a little scary too, because as technology improves, so does that, you know, it's more expensive. You know, we, we hope that, you know, the path for, um, getting all this great technology comes with, with the ability to still maintain that excitement, um, and, and grow and obtain them in your practice. Um, but I think that's, that's going to be really fun, not just, uh, devices and machines, but also just techniques and, and, you know, what we know now hopefully will not be. Uh, what we do, you know, 15, 20 years from now. We'll look back on it the way I was at a party the other day and this retired ophthalmologist was, I mean, giving me the whole story of, of you know, his extra cap and intra cap days. And, and I was, oh no, that's going to be me one day at one of those parties talking about the days that I did fake emulsification and stuck a monofocal in the bag. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's funny to think about that. You know, it's kind of like someone said, someday Snoop Dogg is going to be on the oldies channel. And I, I, <laughs> I heard that and I thought, no, that can't be. But, you know, that at some point that's going to be old. That's going to be old music. Um, so I think that that's kind of like a shocking fact that the things that we think are fun and, and relevant and, and new are going to someday be old and boring. Um, one thing I am interested in, and I'd like to get your take on this as I'm just kind of processing this question also, I just feel like machine learning and what um, artificial intelligence may do for refractive cataract surgery could be really exciting. Um, it seems that machine learning um, has really taken off in the last year or so. Um, there's even some AI for diabetic retinal screening, which is pretty uh, cool and just approved by the FDA. And, and something I'm kind of interested in is maybe even more advanced formulas where we're, we're looking at hundreds of factors and uh, figuring out the right you know, lens slash surgical incision slash approach for each patient based on sort of this normative or you know, AI platform. With your background in, in research and outcomes, is that something you guys have looked at at all or thinking about? Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely some – well, first of all, I mean – 
we got to be honest, but we spend a lot of time on our IOL calculations and, and, you know, there's still no, you know, perfect way. Of course, there's some, you know, some gray zones about effective lens position and stuff. But I mean, I think, you know, that's where some of the formulas are going, some of the newer generation formulas. So, you know, they haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, but you're right. I mean, it would be nice to, to know, you know, to have the outcome be sort of predestined. There's always going to be outliers, um, as one can know. But, you know, it is, um, you know, one thing I've learned with this administration role of doing um, the outcomes is that it is very much a pattern. You see patterns over and over again. And I think, you know, because we're more excited about things like, you know, producing papers from this and the literature that goes with this um, and, you know, how to create our day. But I bet you there would be a way even from scheduling your OR day to scheduling your clinic um, for some metric to go in there to make you more efficient um and, and not, not just your scheduler but really i mean the numbers are there and so as as you know like for example our schedulers now are finding you know this is how long it's taken you to see this patient well let's reprocess your schedule but i could bet you there'll be a way for a machine to do that for you and be much more accurate i mean right now we're putting manpower into it manpower to calculate iols manpower to figure out where to put your lri manpower to um, figure out how your schedule should be how many cases you can do in a day um, it's a very interesting um seems a little assembly line like but uh, i mean as long as there's checks and balances to make sure the outcomes are still just as good i think it's a pretty exciting idea yeah i've actually thought about this and and i you know efficiency is is the ultimate and sophistication in my operating room and, and I preach efficiency so much that my my techs and nurses roll their eyes every time I say the word but I'm like the efficiency hound and I actually said something very similar the other day I said you know if we could put in the age of the patient the grade of the lens the clarity of the cornea and the maximal dilated pupil I would bet you that we could probably if we had those four factors we could probably with pretty tight tolerances predict how long the case is gonna take, and we could actually find ways to schedule patients more efficiently because we know that some cataracts are gonna take twice to three times as long as another one, uh, but our schedulers generally don't know that unless we somehow tell them that. So yeah, I totally agree with you. I think there, there are ways that we are going to utilize artificial intelligence uh, to make our schedules flow better, to make our outcomes more predictable, and, and I think one other thing is we're going to be able to sit down with a patient and know if they are a potential outlier before we do surgery and give them some relative parameters just like you know the weatherman would say you know 60 percent chance of rain well what does that mean it means you know maybe take an umbrella but maybe it's going to be sunny it'd be nice to sit down with a patient to say based on the way your eye is built we have about a 40 percent chance of hitting our target and at least we can set our expectations ahead of time um, with that patient based on some factors rather than just saying, ah, we'll fix it if it, you know, we'll fix it with LASIK later if it's not the way we want it to be. But um, so anyways, I'm, I'm kind of excited about artificial intelligence and it sounds like you have some interest there as well for the future. I think also, I mean, you know, I think as our patient population changes um, and it's a different demographic, it's a different, um, you know, a different generation. I think we're going to see more interest in patients knowing those kind of numbers having more efficiency in the clinic. I mean, we're already seeing that now. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that common to get a patient who, you know, 
expects to spend long time with the surgeon in the in the room discussing all these things. They want to hear outcomes and numbers. Um, I go to a satellite clinic out in Clear Lake in Houston, which is near NASA, and like half my patients are retired engineers um, who I'm doing cataract surgery on. Um, they used to be part of the Department of Defense. I mean, you should just hear it. They they chat with me about, they're like, well, really, that's how you do your IOL calculations. They're like, I would have thought this, this, and that. And I'm like, wow, you know, and they're interested in the numbers like, hey, you know, you have a long eye. So, you know, your your chances of having a hyperopic outcome or a myopic outcome are a little bit different compared to the regular population. Um, I think we're going to see that more and more. Obviously, that's a unique population. They want all numbers. Um, they want a, lo- a landing pad. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You should actually gather those old engineers and um, put them to to work for you because I bet they would come up with some amazing things and they probably have a lot of gas left in the tank. So <laughs> just the thought. Sumitra, um, I'm so happy that we got a chance to catch up and that you got a chance to come on and uh, give us some of your insights. And um, as I've said to some other guests in the past, anytime you have something you'd like to share with us, you have an open invitation to uh, come back on. We always love hearing what's going on with you and and uh, look forward to uh, seeing all the things you're going to do in the future for our profession. So thanks again for being on tonight. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Gary. Reach out to the people you want to work with and start forming connections early on. If possible, gain exposure to a range of equipment before you go out into practice. Be able to sell yourself on your strengths. Even if a practice isn't actively looking for someone new, you might find out that you have just the skills the practice is looking for. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thanks for listening. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.